to Design Conscious, a podcast exploring diversity and leadership in environmental sustainability in the built environment. My name is Sarah Lawler. I am a Sydney-based architect, and through this series, I speak to sustainability leaders working across a variety of different organisations related to the built environment, including design, construction, research and investment, with an aim to learn about the impact of sustainability leadership. This podcast is supported by the 2020 International Women's Day Scholarship awarded by NARWIC, the National Association of Women in Construction, which has facilitated this research into gender equity and diversity in sustainability leadership. Reynolds is a senior project manager based in Western Australia with 15 years experience working in the built environment industry. Carla thrives on innovative solutions to sustainability challenges and has been involved with many varied and pioneering projects that have required this approach. A strong believer in the power of collaboration, Carla understands that achieving a truly sustainable outcome cannot come without engagement between public and private entities. Carla is looking forward to returning to work for Climate Kick in 2021 following leave to have her second child and kindly join me for a chat while on parental leave. In our conversation today, Carla shares the tools she believes are equipping sustainability leaders to be the leaders we need in uncertain times. We discuss navigating a career and balancing family life, as well as her advice to keep your fight. Hi, Carla. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Sarah. Thank you. I wanted to start our conversation today by getting a bit of background from you about how you ended up in sustainability and a little bit about your career journey so far. Okay. I began my career, or I suppose my, my, I went to university with the intention to be an architect. I started at university, was studying architecture, and within a year I had um, a company approach me asking me if they would, they, they basically wanted to take on a, a graduate but they somehow heard about me, wanted to take me on. So then they would pay for me to do the, do the degree five years. I worked with them um, full-time and studied part-time. So I did that and I studied in London um, and did that for three years. Loved the role and, and obviously the, the architecture course, but actually in the process of it, I learned that I really didn't want to be an architect. <laughs> um, and I think it was about then when... So this was about 15 years ago and sustainability was starting to creep into the work. So this is in the UK. So uh, Brienne was the tool there. And I started to become involved in projects like that and saw a lot of meaning in, in that and felt like I couldn't see my career moving forward as just an architect because if, in my mind, if you weren't thinking sustainably, then you didn't have a, a career in the, in the long term. So I ended up, I was looking for other courses to do and I ended up doing, like leaving my job, leaving the degree, um, which people thought I was mad. And I went and did, I finished my degree in interior design, 
not because I wanted to be an interior designer, but just because the degree covered construction, it covered sustainability. It talked about the subjects that I wanted to be learning more about. So I did that and actually I learned sustainability became more of the discussion. I ended up doing my dissertation in indoor air quality, which at the time was barely talked about. And obviously now we talk about indoor environment quality and, and, and overall, and there's a lot more work that's been done. So around that time when I was finishing uni, we got an opportunity to move to Australia. That was always my intention to, to come to Australia anyway. So we grabbed that literally months after I finished uni. So when I came into the Perth market, I was looking for sustainability roles and applied for an ESD consultant role with Kundal. So Kundal were quite new in Perth at the time. They'd been in other cities in Perth, um, in Australia for a while. And there were 40 applicants, which was a lot at that time. And they interviewed five of us. Um, What I later found out, so I I got the job. What I later found out was that I was the only person that didn't have an engineering degree that applied for the job. Probably the only female as well. Uh, The reason why I got the job over the others was because my manager said that he knew he could put me in front of a client tomorrow and it would be okay. Like he wouldn't have to babysit me, which was great. So I had the opportunity that I was looking for. And it was really good to be a part of a company that was just sort of rising in Perth. Um, In that as well, I I did always struggle because there was a part of where he employed me because I wasn't an engineer, but then tried to make me an engineer, which I I don't think like an engineer. (laughs) You know, there's that battle always between architects and engineers, isn't there? So really enjoyed the role and ended up actually through that um so when had my first baby um had some issues with the whole returning to work um part-time full-time when and so on um and then when I did return to work one of my clients being Lend Lease actually put a, an offer across the table and and I went over to become sustainability manager for Lend Lease um in WA that was quite an easy decision for me at the time uh it was a three three days a week role which when you've just come back to work with the baby, it was perfect. It was also perfect because I couldn't get full-time daycare at that time. I previously had it booked like the year in advance and then I'd lost it because of the dates changing about me going back to work. So three days was all I could do. And the project that I was working on was, like, it was something I, I was actually gutted to go on maternity leave when I did because I was leaving that project behind. Um, the irony is that that project still hasn't really come to fruition six years later. <laughs> and that's just because market issues and so on. But I did achieve, from a sustainability perspective, we did achieve what we had intended to achieve in the first year as well. From that, I suppose I mean, Lendlease was a fantastic company to work for. We had a great team. And like I said, it was a great project. And then I started talking to one of the professors at Curtin and we were just at the time bouncing off of each other, getting, he wanted to know what was going on in the industry in Perth. I was um, learning what was going on at, at, at Curtin University because what I was feeling at that time was that a lot of things that could happen on projects weren't happening because we needed more collaboration. And my thinking was, could we get industry, university and um, government collaborating to make these things happen quicker? Um, 
because definitely one of the the conversations that's you know we're having around sustainability is that you know we've known this for years it's been in many business plans and nothing's happened quick enough so then the project manager role for an almost world first project was kind of offered to me and I took that ended up being full-time and that suited me because at this time my son was three and he was driving me insane (laughs) he's high energy so I was actually really happy to go back to work full-time at that point and I could get the daycare to to do so and I went into that project and there was a lot to be done it was it needed rewriting almost and within two weeks I thought what have I done like I was I was with, I was on a team and I was in a project that I loved and now I'm going to have to fix this and, and so on. But it was, I learned a lot in that project and it wasn't all a good time, uh, but there was a lot of collaboration and a lot of really strong relationships built and, and it was a great learning curve. Um, and then from Curtin, a role came up. So Climate Kicker, one of Curtin's partners, um, and my contract was finishing with Curtin and Climate Kick kind of they were looking for a senior project manager and I fit the bill so they grabbed me (laughs) and then um the one of the hardest things was about a month after starting the role with climate kick I had to tell my CEO that I was pregnant (laughs) and um and and it hadn't been planned at that point we'd had some issues with getting pregnant for about three years so it was great news but at the same time like it's (laughs) just think kind of you've just started this new role and it's exciting you're meeting your team and then you're getting, <laughs> you're having to decline a wine and pretending like you don't drink <laughs> but really it's for other reasons so that was interesting but actually they they were so supportive I couldn't have asked for a more supportive team and so I've been on leave now since February and I'll go back to work in February so I'll go back to Climate Kick in February um, working we're just talking at the moment about what projects I'll go back to to work on so I'm very excited to go back but I promised myself this year and this was before COVID that I would take a slow year enjoy the simple life um, and and have that like downtime because I think I needed it after the curtain projects that were almost sent me I almost quit I almost just said I'm out I'm done Wow. Well, I don't know how anyone thinks having a baby is going to be a quiet year, but (laughs) (laughs) anyway, can you tell me a little bit more about your role at Climate Kick and what they do as an organisation and I guess how they fit into the built environment industry? So, and this is where it's quite funny that I, so my career has been focused in built environment um, and Kick, their role, they're not all focused on built environment. So everybody at Kick comes from different backgrounds. So some are from finance, some are from government, some are researchers, some are graduate. So I'm actually the one that's come in with the built environment connections and experience. And that, I think, was a bit of a um, purposeful thing from their perspective. Obviously, because a lot of the work that's being done when we talk to sustainability um, you know, the built environment and and everything we do in construction, design, new and retrofit building is extremely important in this journey. So I'm kind of the built environment person, per se. And that was one of the things that really interested me about Kick as well was because it's not about just trying to trial 
innovation. It's about encouraging and um, getting startups into industries, giving them that that platform, giving them that guidance. And you know, some people have an idea, but they just don't know how to get it to fruition. So it's about training that and, and giving them opportunities to get their ideas out there and meet them with the right people. So it drives that collaboration, but it, it, it creates connections. But it's it's about systems change because the reality is we can't just keep trialing small pieces and ticking boxes and saying, oh, well, that was nice, wasn't it? Um, we need to actually change policy. So it's about really building a movement, I suppose, in some part. And it's it's quite inspiring because everybody that's at Kick, they haven't all had a strong sustainability background. Like that's not what their entire career has been based on, but they've in some way or another come into it and then felt driven to have to to do something to to make that change which is definitely something that it's kind of, it builds an energy. I think it's great as well to be around people where, because they're not all from the built environment, we can learn something from each other. We've all come from different areas. So like those that come from government know where there's going to be issues in that, in that process. They know that there's certain levels that you have to go to. There's, there's process, there's patience. They understand all of that. And, and in the same way, like I'll understand the, the built environment. So it's really good to learn from each other. Definitely something that I felt I wanted to understand more about was the finance side. And I think it's, it's something we're starting to see a lot of movement in the past couple of years about where investments are being driven away from fossil heavy industries, you know, and, and, and it's basically, you know, money money talks. <laughs> Investments need to be safe. And if they're not safe in fossils, they're going to move elsewhere. So I think we're starting to see a, a huge shift, actually, in that place. So it's a really important area for us to understand more about. Yeah, and that is very encouraging that we are starting to see the money change and, and move towards those sustainable investments. So you are now at Climate Kick and the organisation describes itself as an innovation community, um, inspiring and enabling across the board collaboration. So how does this differ from your previous roles and how do you think that Climate Kick will be able to make a difference? It, it differs because, like I said, we've all ended up at Kick because we're we're motivated to make a change. Um, we're motivated to see things done differently. And we don't all have the same experiences, which is what's great. Um, so you get really, really fruitful conversations. And you know that you can go to your colleagues and, and get something from them that would be very different, like, like a thought path that you wouldn't even gone through, which is great. It's different because, I mean, definitely in the university sector, I found it was... It was very hard because there's so much admin um, and it's not even a case of process. Like, you know, within uh, built environment, we have a lot of process and there's a very good reason for that. And a lot of it comes down to safety uh, and legality and so on. And it's extremely important. And I've always respected process um, because I think it is important. Um, but in university, it's a whole nother level. <laughs> it's almost exhausting because it takes so much time that it's just it's not process it kind of goes somewhere else and it, it kind of drains that ability to get work done and elsewhere I found so sustainability 
in the built environment. So when you're the sustainable person sat at the table for a project, I think you definitely are not the most respected individual at the table. Um, and obviously, if you're the only female at the table as well, you, it adds that that extra level where you've got to, well, we all know we've got to work that little bit harder just to get the same respect, just the, the same, you know, just to get the eye contact sometimes, just to be able to have your voice heard. I think the best way to say it is probably at the highest level in the industry, there's a lot of want and drive and understanding that sustainability is the, you know, is, is an extremely important piece of the project. Um, but then as you move down the ranks within projects and so on, middle management, a lot of the time there just isn't the time for it. They don't want to change. They, they're quite happy business as usual. Some people, uh, you know, they've done something for 40 years. They're on their way to retirement. They're quite happy not to change and they would like to continue doing so. Definitely from the perspective of being a female, that is getting better. I think from my experience, I found it was funny. When I was pregnant with my son, I suddenly had a lot of men who were fathers and husbands talking to me about their experiences as a father, their, their wives' experiences, the hope that, the, you know, the thing of having a child. And I'd never seen them open up like that before. So you saw a different side to them. So it definitely, it made a, a, a big difference as to how men started to perceive me then. And I, I'm not sure whether that was because I was kind of joining a new club, the parent club, I don't know. But they definitely softened a little. And I'm a person that I kind of, I, I always go with the idea that I think building relationships within work and within your industry is an extremely important thing to do. And I have found that there's a lot of men that because they have wives who are in, you know, they have careers that are just as important as their own. Like I, I've met a lot of men that I've worked with whose wives are lawyers. So in some part, they're, they're not the breadwinner. <laughs> like they have a, a, a very good job um, and career, but they're not the breadwinner. And they're aware of that. <laughs> and that does make a difference. But they seem to be more able to have the conversations and to be open to the ideas of doing things differently. And that's been, that's been a great experience. Well, I think that leads us um, well into the next theme, which is about your experience in relation to diversity and female representation in leadership and in the sustainability industry. So I'm keen to hear from your perspective, have there been any particular challenges or opportunities in relation to diversity in your career? Yeah. Um, early on, you get used to being the only female in the room. That's changing. I mean, I know there's been, there's been times when I was told not to wear certain things. Um, I'd wear a dress to work. I'd be complimented on it in the morning. Then I'd be told in the afternoon, don't wear that again because, you know, it's sort of distracting. It's been a dress that's fully covered everything, but it might have shown that, you know, because I, I have, I have shape, <laughs> you know, don't, don't distract men whilst they're at work type thing. And you brush it off because what can you do about it? Really? You definitely, there, there is that. When I was younger, I, I think I definitely, and this I don't think this was just at work. I think I did it in my personal life as well. There was always that strive to try and do things like, like the boys did it. So, you know, 
I can eat all of that food. I can drink all of that beer. And the same like in work, you would be at the table and be in your, in your mannerism and, and try and be a bit more blokey because that's obviously how you get to, to where you get. But then I, I did learn that there's no benefit to the industry or to anyone doing that because females bring something different to the table and <laughs> things haven't been going spectacularly for many, many years. It's about time we need, we had some change and maybe the females are, are, are a part of that change. Um, so I did start doing things differently. It, it took me a while to, to do that. I, and I think that's, a, that's a, a big thing that is confidence. I remember somebody saying to me maybe about eight years ago, it would have been. And there was always that feeling of being in a meeting and, and being quite intimidated, like the, that definite imposter syndrome, um, because you're in your 20s, you're in a meeting room surrounded by men in their 40s, 50s, 60s, um, who are very certain about what they know. And you sat there thinking, I know nothing. I don't have a clue. You understand everything that's being said. You have ideas, but but you don't want to vocalise them. And then somebody said to me, nobody else in that room knows what they're talking about either. Nobody else knows what they're doing. Genuinely, no one knows what they're doing. And when I started going into meetings thinking like that I started to realize that it's actually in some part true like in reality we're all kind of just figuring it out as we go it doesn't matter how long we've been in the industry we're we're still figuring it out and I think what's scary for a lot of people is when you bring sustainability into the conversation they don't know they really don't so it is the younger generation it is the females it's the, the guys that are willing to think differently, that are, le- that are willing to learn new things, that are going to have the most important things to say at certain points because it hasn't been said before or done before. And that's, been, that's definitely one of the hardest things we had, especially in Perth, was if it hasn't been done elsewhere, no, we can't do it because there isn't a precedent set. What if it goes wrong? What if it doesn't work? Like, and there were times when a lot of what we do as business as usual didn't work or hadn't been done before, but there was a, there's a lot of fear. I hope that everything that's happened with COVID this year, where it's shown that we can adapt and we can adapt quickly, I hope that that gives people a bit more of that ability to, I suppose, manage risk better. So something I think that we've got a generation that are they're about to leave the workforce um, and, and obviously mainly. Um, and I, I hope, I, I strongly believe that we've got a generation where there's a lot more females in the workplace than there was in that, that previous generation. Obviously, they're, they're fully qualified. They have the experiences if they've been working in sustainability and innovation um, within their career. They, they're actually, they are the right, tools to be leaders um, and they're the kind of leaders that we need in the future because when we're not entering times where we really know what's happening we're entering extremely uncertain times so we need adaptability we need kindness we need empathy we need that nurturing kind of type of person and there are many men that that hold those um, skills but predominantly it's female that do because that's just who we are we've managed families and homes for years 
on top of now how, like keeping strong careers and relationships going and I think those are the kind of people that we want in those leadership roles the challenge is how do we support them um, and how do we give them those abilities to be able to do those roles whilst maintaining those families and relationships I mean how how can um does it mean if a woman's going to take that role does it mean that her husband has to take the the role at home like, like has a, traditionally has been the other way around is that something that we accept uh, I, I don't know because that, that depends on the person as an individual but definitely people from sustainability roles have the right skills to move forward into those leadership positions in the future yeah and I think those leadership roles are changing maybe sustainability was not previously the path to become the CEO because it was driven by different things but now there I think there is a lot more recognition about the importance of um, sustainability as a as a whole raft of things not just environmental sustainability but social as well and I think it is brings together a lot of those skills that are going to become more and more important yeah I mean I've sat on projects and you know the engineer sat there he's the, the mechanical engineer sat there he's got his drawings in front of him with his mechanical drawings and that's all he has to consider and talk about in the meeting I sit there with pages and one minute I'm talking about and like mechanical system then I'm talking about the indoor air quality then I'm talking about the like the outdoor areas the landscaping and I'm talking about the the uh, the furniture and I'm talking like it's <laughs> you've been bouncing between so many different subjects within a such a small space of time you you kind of you, you have to understand so many things and in, in my mind, like when you're a leader in, in those sort of, you know, when you're in the C-suite, you have, you trust your, your employees. They know more than you. And that, that's one of the great things about being in those roles. You have to have a great team and you trust them. Um, but you need to be able to understand a lot of those um, themes. And if you've been in sustainability, you've bounced all over it. <laughs> it's all, you've done it already. <laughs> So hopefully some things to look forward to in future leadership now that sustainability is becoming more widespread and, as you said, hopefully more integrated rather than being the silo. Yes, definitely. So in your role, of course, you are trying to make an impact in terms of sustainability and, as you've just said, it's imperative that we do change sustainability practices and and try and create that impact. So I'm wondering in terms of leadership, what does it mean for you to be a sustainability leader? I don't know if anyone thinks of themselves as a sustainability leader. I try to think of myself more so as, so we've said the word sustainability a lot, but it's the greatest thing is that if we can, if we stop using the word sustainable and sustainability, because we kind of, in some ways we've, past the point of sustainability we're now talking a lot more about regeneration and innovation so I think now I see myself more as an innovator I'm not one of those entrepreneurs I'm not I'm not having a a bright idea and having a startup and you know absolutely taking every risk in my life to to put this crazy idea idea out there but what I want to be doing is seeing that idea, seeing what somebody's doing, seeing another, another place where they need a solution, I want to be bringing those two together and create that collaboration. So I more see myself as, I don't know, maybe an, an enabler. It's hard to think of as a leader 
because there's always somebody doing something great and I'm not doing the greatest stuff. We're all just having a go. <laughs> One of the things that I do try and think of, because I'm, I'm definitely where I'm coming back to, when I come back from maternity lift this time around, there's no more babies. So I won't be going on leave again. I'll be fully head in career and thinking about what I can do without having to have that idea of taking leave. So how to sort of lift my game, I guess. And one thing that does worry me at the moment is that a lot of female leaders I see, they're on a personal perspective, from a family perspective, their husbands are quite often not working full time. Their husbands are the ones that have had to have the flexibility in their role um, or they've taken time out so that the wife can project to do the, the bigger things. And that's, I, I guess it's almost like one person in the relationship has the platform at the time. So it's, it's a question as to how that can happen in the future. And then that comes, it's not just about you being the leader, it's how can your husband be a leader and have those what are challenging conversations for men to have with their employers to say, look, I need some more, I need some flexibility. Can I, can I make my role part-time? Can I reduce my hours because I need to take on more of a family role? That's a, that's, um, that's a difficult one. You've just talked about changing the language around sustainability and shifting towards thinking more about regeneration and enabling. And perhaps that is an answer to my next question, but what do you think the perception of sustainability is in the broader construction industry? And do you think it needs to change to try and improve its impact? The perception is definitely that it just costs money. It's, you know, we haven't got money in the budget for this. Why am I having to pay more for something? You know, I could do it like this and it won't cost me more. Why would I do it like this for it to cost me more? Um, when you're looking at design and construction, if you're going to build an apartment building and, you know, you talk about putting solar and batteries in and that has an impact on the life of the building and the users that will live in the building, it doesn't have any um, benefit for the, the company developing the building other than if they can earn more, like get more money from the marketing of solutions. So one of the tricky things is uh, whether the buyer will pay more because of sustainability and, and all these, these add-ons. If they will, great. But if they won't, there's no motivation to really do it. Obviously, we've got Greenstar and the GBCA have done fantastic things to change the language within the industry, to, to push the industry forward. When we haven't had policy to do that, we've had things like the GBCA and that has neighbours and so on that has done that. And that's been great. The hard thing was always trying to avoid that tick box type approach. Um, and that's where, you know, people would just be targeting points just to, to kind of like to tick that box. What are the ones I can do with that don't cost me any money, basically? So it is tough to sell something, but then it's, it's in the same realm that when we talk about climate change and sustainability and global warming and, and so on, the conversation's hard in general because if it doesn't, if, if it's not impacting somebody in their life right now, they don't see why that something needs to change. If you can change the conversation to say, look, everything that's changing, it, it's going to change. 
we've sped things up, but it's us that are going to be the ones that, that suffer in the long run. Like, you know, the extreme weather events that we're seeing now, it's the humans as well as the animals and, and nature that suffer. The difference is we won't be able to pick ourselves back up from it. You know, a fire rips through a place, nature regenerates. We don't work in the same manner. We, don't, we definitely don't work at the same speed either. Um, so it's about trying to change that conversation that it's, this isn't about saving the planet, it's about saving our species uh, and, and hopefully not it taking out several other species with us. There's a, a trick to, you, you almost need to tap into somebody's care factor and everybody is different. So there's a, a large amount of psychology in it also. <laughs> so it's exhausting. <laughs> But I think, um, you know, of course you've hit on the, the urgency of this. It is such an important issue and it feels sometimes like the construction industry is stuck within that tick-the-box exercise around sustainability and how do we, how do we move it forward? And um, I guess in terms of leadership in the industry, do we need to see more government leadership? Do we need to see organisations really pushing it beyond just those ratings tools in a market-driven way? Like, how do you think we can actually push it forward? Yeah, definitely a lot of things that I've been involved with in the past few years, like when I've spoken to trials previously, we can trial something, but if we can't get government policy, it doesn't go any further. And then, so, you know, policy can take a couple of years to be changed, but it's too late. Industry's moved on. Market's moved on. So, we definitely do need need a government sector that is able to because there's there's people within those sectors that are perfectly able and and, and willing to, but we need a, a the process to be able to keep up with I guess humanity. We're driving lives. Everything's hurry, hurry, hurry. We're on our smartphones. We're always available. But policy is one thing that definitely just takes too long, and it's meaning that industry is having to kind of get on with the jobs themselves but then there's also there's always going to be parts of the industry that aren't that just aren't going to go along with that because they don't have to so there's a point where they'll get left behind but if you had policy everybody would be going they'd be in the, the same playing field and and you do need a transition time and obviously energy the energy sector is one of the big ones that we're talking about this transition <laughs> I'm not going to speak directly to what the federal government's <laughs> ideas are on that we all know it's wrong <laughs> but it that's an example of poor leadership in my mind leadership is doing something that's right even if it isn't popular and that's why leadership's hard so I mean, it's, but then that's where it gets tricky when you add politics into it because politics is politics. And there's also a lot of men in politics who are being funded by a lot of men and they just don't, they don't have the, the guts or the, the know-how to do things differently, I think, which is a shame. But we, we, there's definitely players within our industry and our industry is obviously a huge industry from an economic perspective to make an impact. There are definitely players that are pushing things. It's just the, the fear is that you'll have the top tiers moving along, innovation, regeneration, things will be looking looking great, but then you're always going to have several tiers below that that just don't move. And so in the long run, what do we achieve? Yeah. 
you've just mentioned, I guess, the, the federal stance and we don't have to get too specific about that. Oh. <laughs> I'm a citizen. I can vote next time. I only became a citizen last, like late last year, so I couldn't vote at the last election. I watched it on TV like, Ugh. Well, congratulations. But next time I can vote. <laughs> Well, you're also a member, a committee member on the Western Australia Sustainable Development Committee for the Property Council of Australia. And I guess at a time in COVID when um, we're really looking to the development industry to help with stimulus and keeping the economy going, how do we balance this need to develop responsibly and sustainably? Yeah. It is difficult. Um, it was a conversation I had with an old colleague last year and we were talking about carbon budget because um, if you think about the, glo- the global carbon budget, reality is we can't afford to be building any new buildings. We should be renovating what we have. We should be concentrating on transitioning our, our energy and our resources. So it's an extremely difficult conversation to have what's great about being involved in the committees like the the pca um sustainable development committee is that in that one in particular not everybody in that room has sustainability in their their job title which is great um but they do all have an interest in driving the conversation so in that room we can talk about the things that are being done we can um add our our input to national so policies that are being written or suggested letters that are being written to go to next levels we can all we can all add our like you know put our input in and that's great and it's almost like just kind of keeping that energy going keeping those ideas rolling not letting the conversation go flat and that's very important and I do love that it isn't just I know a lot of those people because I've worked with them across the years and they're not sustainability people, but they've come into it because they've had realisations across their career. And that's really good to see people are sort of moving. And I've said it for a long time is that I think I'll be satisfied when there's no longer a sustainability person in the room, because I think that will mean that everybody's thinking in the right manner. So we don't need someone to be kind of going, oh, hello. You've mentioned innovation and and also your previous experience with Curtin University. And I know that Climate Kick have a partnership with Curtin through the Climate Launchpad event. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the importance of collaboration between research and industry and um, some of the ideas that have come out of this partnership. Collaboration is the most important thing. Um, so one of the projects that I managed when I was with Kirsten University, um, we ran a trial. There was a lot of work that went into it from an industry perspective, from a state government perspective, and um, from, the sort of, I suppose, the technology side of things. And although the results that came out of it weren't, you know, they, they weren't perfect, they didn't give us a definite way to move forward, or, or something that we could take to scale. But what did come out of that is the collaboration. So when that project began, people didn't think that we'd be able to get all of those entities in a room talking, let alone collaborating. And we did. And we, we did it for 18 months. It was fantastic. And those, those relationships are, are pretty solid and, and are continuing. So more work's going to continue with regards to that. So that, I think, was a great stepping stone to more innovation 
it's very hard for these large entities to start to innovate. It's very hard for them to innovate and, and collaborate with the smaller entities as well. So, but it's also very hard because a lot of these smaller entities, they're, they're very much like our solution is the only solution that will work and we have to do it this way. So it's about trying to open up those um, conversations and giving everybody the ability to work together and, and add, add a different element to the conversation. It's funny that a lot of people that are involved in the startups, they've come from the, the you know the bigger entities the bigger clunky entities so they've seen all of that and it's frustrating and that and when you move into a startup you're far more agile and that's what's that's what's really exciting but it's hard it's hard like startup world is hard work for them and they, those people are like they're working their guts off to do something different as someone now very much embedded in the industry you have an opportunity to help set the agenda for what we need to be focusing on in terms of trying to improve the impact of sustainability. What are your main priorities for the next year um, when you come back to work and for the next five years? Um, so obviously the whole net zero carbon has become the language for the past couple of years. Um, you know, we talk about this, this targets for 2050 there's targets for 2030 unfortunately Australia just seems to be lost somewhere in the abyss um so from my perspective I think it's I think what's most important is for Australia not to miss the opportunity so we have the ability to create to grow industry to be able to create energy that could be exported and to actually be a leader in this space, we've got the we've got the the brain power. We've got there's there's the investment that's willing. We've got the land. We've got like there's there's so much that we have here. Uh, we just don't have the government <laughs> and the policy. So definitely, that's going to be one of my key like key focuses because I've been I guess reflecting whilst I've had my time off and thinking about doing a master's or an MBA in the future. Um, for that next level and I, I was trying to think what to do with it was was the where's my time best spent you know if if, if I'm going to like my career's got another 30 years in it what should I be spending my energy on and I think I hope I'm not doing that for 30 years because it should be it should be solved by then otherwise we're all in trouble but definitely that for the next year five years 10 years maybe even 20 unfortunately it's going to be a case of how can we be driving the economic transition to renewables and change the conversation so it isn't a conversation about sustainability it's just a conversation about doing a great project and changing things so that you know they're cleaner they're healthier um we're creating a country and a world that you know we're actually proud of all of us go to work to be proud of something um and I don't know why you wouldn't want to be involved in something that makes you proud um so that's definitely going to be my my driver net zero carbon 2030 would be ideal but how long have we got 10 10 well nine and a half years we need more David Attenborough's that's what it is I know we do in British <laughs> yes oh Greta you know poor girl she just kind of felt like she could 
she couldn't do anything, so she did something. And that's a, it's a great example of everyone can do something. My mom doesn't really understand climate change. And she'd say to me, like, oh, you talk about all of this, but what can I do? Just, you know, little me, what can I do? And I, I've said, you know, put your money in the right places, do your research, invest your money in the right places, and vote for the right leaders. Like, if you don't recycle, if you don't do it, you know, you know, the simple things like recycling and, and eating, like, local and shopping, like, all that stuff. But if you don't do any of that, invest your money correctly and vote for the, correct, the right leaders. Absolutely. And that's some great advice for the general public. And now I'm going to ask you for some advice for anyone who is trying to make a difference in this field, in the construction industry. Do you have any advice? Look after your own mental and physical health because you'll need, you'll, you'll need it. And build relationships, but don't try and ram it down people's throat. Um, understand what their drivers are, understand what they're trying to do because, that you know, go with the, the sense that people are trying to do things, you know, well, um, they're trying to do a good job. Um, learn to use a different language. Um, learn to yeah, always be interesting. <laughs> but, you, but you've got to take it on the chin. It's, it isn't often, you know, you can build these relationships, but things won't change quickly as much as they need to. They'll, they'll probably... You just you kind of you end up building a team. You, you you know you've got more people having the same kind of conversations, and then take those conversations and, and, and action them. Don't just talk talk about it. Follow up. Keep things keep things accountable. Keep driving them, and obviously keep your your physical and mental health well because you you will need it. It is a, an exhausting part of the industry to be in sometimes and you got you can become quite sensitive to what's obviously because obviously the, the world's been going crazy and you've got to keep your fight I'd like to end on a question about inspiration and if you could name one thing that has been instrumental in shaping the kind of sustainability leader or advocate that you are today and it could be a book a place a person and we've just named a few of those um, an idea or an experience what would that be I had I, I don't yeah so I had a CEO a few years ago he's he was also a colleague after that and I still keep in contact with him and he was extremely calm in his nature he was a very good CEO um, and he would so if you had a great day, he'd celebrate that. If you had a bad day, he'd he'd sit down and he would talk about it. And it wouldn't be there, there, oh, it's tough and so on. He'd talk about it and you'd talk it out and you'd talk about your ideas. And then you'd end up, like your bad day would actually grow and it would end up being, oh, something really great came out of this. Um, but he was so calm. He's definitely someone that if I know if I need a, maybe it's an inspiration um, but I know that I could contact him and say, hey, I've got to, like, I need to bounce this off of somewhere. He was a, he's been very important in, in that manner. Um, I think it's, it's extremely important, and it took me a while to learn this. And, and people say you need mentors, and maybe they're not always people that will be mentors, but you definitely need people that are in, like, senior uh, roles to yourself, maybe roles that you aspire to be in. You need them. Um, and you need to be able to reach out to them. And I think it took me a little while to understand that they are approachable. And if you meet someone 
that you kind of feel that you get that sense from, it's a, a good thing to definitely reach out to them and keep them in your, I suppose, always keep their contact, always, always almost check in with them, always, you know, have that conversation, send, send them that, that random quote, like keep that, that conversation going because it's, it's worthwhile. And I think I found myself in some default mentorship roles and actually the mentor gets as much out of it as the, the mentee does also. I don't know if I've read any books in particular, but I, I do remember years ago I read a book. I think it's called Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that one always springs to mind. One of the things that springs to mind when I am, um, when I think of that one is one of the pieces of advice in it, and this is because it's a very female trait, is don't say sorry. Stop saying sorry. So I have a bit of a personal rule now, like I'll apologize if I'm late because someone's time is important and I'll apologize if I've done something wrong, but that's very rare. (laughs) (laughs) But don't, don't ever start an email with, I'm sorry. Don't ever um, apologize for existing. Don't ever apologize for suggesting an idea. Remove the word just from those sentences as well, because I'm not just doing something, you're doing it. And that, that really kind of helped me to have a, I don't know, I maybe hold my head a bit higher. Don't apologise for, for what you're doing um, because by doing that, you, you, you instantly like lose someone's respect or their attention anyway. So you've wasted your time. So just hold your head a bit higher and, and um, be vocal. Be afraid to make mistakes. Thank you so much for your time today and especially your support for this research even while on parental leave. So I really appreciate it and that's just been a really interesting conversation. So thank you. Thank you. No, I think I think it's a fantastic subject that you're looking at and I look forward to seeing everything that comes from it. Well done. Design Conscious is a podcast created by me, Sarah Lawler, as part of the 2020 International Women's Day Scholarship, supported by NAWIC. Thank you.